I went to this generous giving conference, and it was filled with lots and lots of very rich people. And I wondered why I went to this conference. Someone paid for me to go. It was amazing. The food was really good. But one of the things that happened was I met some very unique people, and, um, you know, just by happenstance. And I feel like it was really ordained by God because uh, over the last half a year or so, we kind of touched base here and there, and I went and learned more about this person's ministry. And uh, it was amazing as we talked. We kind of floated. They had this lazy river, and I think we spent like two and a half hours. We got out, and we were like raisins when we got out of it. And uh, it was hit, you know, Mike and, his, and Audrey and Laura and I and a few other friends, and we just listened to what God had done in his life. And uh, he was talking, he was asking us tons of questions about the church, and it was almost an immediate connection of, you know, we have this, I don't know, just the kindred spirit about, you know, bringing the gospel to the lost and being creative and excellent in how we do that and not wanting to stand on where the gospel has been or where the gospel is, but bringing the gospel to new places. And, uh, I mean, this guy is an amazing, amazing leader. He is excited about Jesus, excited about Jesus' kingdom. And, um, you know, you know that I don't let people speak from outside of River City, but as I thought about us ministering to the poor and what God said last week, I called him, you know, just at the end of the week, I was like, I think you're supposed to speak. And so, um, kind of on the fly, he said he would come and do this. And so, this is Micah. I don't even know how to say your last name, and Audrey's down here with him too, so here we go. Thanks, bro. Vapor Sports Minister, I didn't say the name of it. That's what he runs. <laughs> my name is Mike, I'm at Kelvin. Uh, Audrey, will you stand up? This is, this is my bride, uh, Audrey McKelvin. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. It's a privilege to be here. Yeah, please do clap for my wife, or not, or whatever. That's good. Uh, we are excited about being here with you guys uh, tonight, this weekend. We're looking forward to uh, services and um, just challenging each other with the Word of God. Um, tonight we're going to be talking about uh, uh, some, some global issues. We're going to be talking, it's going to be a little bit of advocacy. Uh, we're going to be talking about, quite honestly, some global travesties. Uh, and we're going to be diving into the Word of God and looking for direction. I also want to say as we just start that... Uh, my wife and I, are, are we love doing what we do. We, we get to work amongst some of the poorest of the poor in the world. Uh, we're not experts. Uh, I, don't, I don't think there's such thing as an expert. Uh, and so we really come to you tonight uh, in humility, and we don't stand before you even unpacking some of the stuff we're going to look at as people who have it all figured out. We're just going to look together at the Word and ask God for His guidance. We love you, Father. We need you, and we ask for your direction. Father, speak through me. Father, please close my mouth to what would come from me that would be not from you. And Father, please open my mouth to speak boldly that which you would have me to say. We love you, and we need you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This is we're kind of setting the stage for some of tonight's meet. Uh, I just would like to do a little bit of it through some experience and kind of share a little bit of my story, a portion of my story. Maybe there's a connecting point uh, at, different, at different junctions in here. Um, on October 9th, 1995, I dove into a wave and I shattered four vertebrae in my neck. It's a long story and I'm not here tonight to tell you my, my whole story. But suffice it to say, um, after getting caught in the wake in the ocean and being in the water for about five to seven minutes, I had drowned and when I was found by a stranger walking down the beach, I had no heartbeat, no pulse, no body functions. And, and quite frankly, God did a miracle. Um, I was life flighted to Tampa General Hospital, spent about a month and a half in rehab, um, several uh, years in out, uh, outpatient therapy. 
and, and, and we could talk all day about different things that God did, but one of the major things that God did through that event was he taught me that life was like a vapor. Psalms 39, 4-7 says, O Lord, help me understand my mortality, the brevity of life, that life is like a vapor in essence as you walk through that passage. And so God at a young age, on October 9th, 1995, crystallized inside of a young man the reality that life is short and that I couldn't change that. But what I could change is how I lived the remainder of it. How I lived the short life he gave me. And that was a catalytic event that propelled me in a new direction. And God's spirit working through that provided fuel for the journey. Another major event in my life happened uh, really around the, the age of 23. Um, again, God had captured me through that circumstance. I now was looking kind of through a new lens. God, how, how can I be used? How can I? And, and he was doing things internally. But at age 23, I got on an airplane. I had never been on a mission trip in my life. And I got on an airplane and flew to East Africa to visit a slum called Kalangwadi Slum. I stayed for a month uh, back uh, with a missionary who, uh, who did not know who I was, but on a phone call said, sure, you can, you can crash at our place. Uh, I went by myself, uh, and I stayed with nationals in the slum and stayed with this missionary family. And, and I was a novice. Uh, we, had, we had begun to do organic ministry. My now wife and I uh, just uh, very organically in a, in a little uh, ghetto in Springfield, Missouri, uh, where there's a lot. And we were working with crack addicts. And it, I mean, it was just it was hardcore stuff. But I had never seen abject poverty. I'd never seen raw take, take the blinders off, the poorest of the poor in the world. And so at 23, I got on a plane, flew over to East Africa, spent a month by myself in a slum. And, and I'll never be able to capture in words what I saw and what God began to do internally. I was internally destroyed, ruined. Uh, I felt like in some ways I died, and in some ways new life was being brought in. I remember one time, or on that first experience, I walked back into a remote portion of the slums. Uh, many of the kids had never seen a white person this far back in the slums, and the kids were running up saying, Wazungu, Mzungu, Mzungu, and they, they wanted to touch my hairy arms and, and, and touch my, my skin, and they were fascinated. And, and so I was kind of like a rock star walking back in there, and I remember this, this, this one particular scene as these boys did not come running, and they were standing on top of a pile of trash. It's a dump within the context of a slum. So it's refuge in a slum. And I see these boys with sticks in their hands, and they're, they're digging down into this trash, and, and they, one of the boys reaches down, and this is real. One of the boys reaches down, picks up the, whatever he found, and he sticks in his mouth, and they begin to eat. And I turned to the guy that was with me, and I asked him to explain the scene. The African guy that was with me he said, well, these boys are one of 150,000 street children in this city alone. 150,000 children in this city alone who are trying to survive off the crumbs in the refuge of the slums. I noticed that on some of the couple of the boys' head, there was a little string and a little bottle that was underneath the nose. And I asked him what that was for, and he said, well, glue is very accessible and very inexpensive. And for some of these boys, it, they take the glue or they sniff the glue because it cuts the hunger pains. They, they can't feel the hunger anymore. I walked back out of that area into another area and went into a lady's house named Velma. And she welcomed us into her, her 
10 by 10 at max 12 by 12. I didn't have my uh, measuring tape on me, but it was somewhere around there, 10 shanty. She began to show me uh, her house that, and, and, and explained to us that 12 people lived in her house. Her Velma's sister had died of AIDS, and they inherited her kids. And, and I asked her just, you know, some questions. How do you do that? How do you sleep? I mean, well, what happens? And she showed me a little bed in the corner, a very soiled, dirty bed. And one, she said her and her husband every night sleep in that bed, one child to the right, one child across her feet, one child to the left. Showed me the, the rickety table that sits in the middle of their, their home on top of the dirt floor and showed us where, how three children every night, they lay them on top of the table and then cover them with a blanket. Showed us the, the benches that wrapped the ten siding and, and demonstrated how the kids, the rest of the kids would cross their arms and lean against the ten chanty. And when I walked out of Velma's house and looked up as far as the eye could see, rows and rows and rows of horse stalls, mule barn style housing, hundreds of thousands of people living in abject poverty. Right now in our world, 1.4 billion people are trying to survive on less than $1 a day. 1.4 billion human beings trying to survive on less than $1 a day. Currently, 827 million people worldwide live in slums, places that I have just barely scratched the surface on describing. And in the African context, in many African countries, 50% of the children are dying by the age of 10. So here I am at 23 years of age, walking in totally unprepared and being destroyed, broken. And as I came back, as I flew back, uh, I was very, in a good way, it was, it was a good thing now, but I was very internally disrupted and asking all kinds of questions. Questions were emerging from, from corners in my heart that I didn't even know existed. Questions like, that were a little more surfacy, but questions like this. Uh, is fighting poverty a secular hobby or is it a biblical response? That was a question in my heart. I had not seen, I, I had not experienced in the Word and I had not experienced uh, from the pulpit passionate advocacy pleas. And so my questions were, uh, questions that I was asking, God, what do you have to say about this? One central question that continued to just kind of eat me inside is, what, God, if, if you're love, I mean, the Bible says clearly in First John, God is love. We know God is love. We see his creation. We recognize his love for us. For God so loved the world. We, we know that I believed that deeply. But God, if you are love, then why did you not tell your church to do something about this? Why did you not call your people to action on behalf of the poor? Again, in my personal journey, in my personal experience, and quite frankly, because of the, the way I was even studying and reading the Scripture, I had, begin to, I had missed something central that we're going to look at tonight. And I was wrestling with the question because in my experience, since when did God call? I had not heard it. I had not seen it in His Word. And so seeing these realities and knowing what I did know about God, the questions, the questions plagued me. Well, I'm here tonight to challenge you, to share with you from the Word, to look together at what God has been saying from the beginning of time. And I believe that God has given us a cause worth living for.
that God has not been silent, is not silent. Let's look at it in his word. What you begin to find is you really unpack the biblical narrative, Old Testament to New Testament, on this particular subject as you look, that truly God has spoken. Actually, over 400 times, Old Testament and New Testament, God speaks to his people on behalf of the poor, the destitute, and the needy. As God, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4, the, the second giving of the law is setting up his chosen people in the land, and he's saying, here's some guidelines. I want to give you some guidelines to follow. Packed into that context, in that book, there's this profound passage. Let me read it to you. He says this to his people. However, there should be no poor among you. For in the land your Lord, the Lord God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. Now what we're going to see as we just kind of unpack some passages is this consistent theme. A theme that is made or is present here even in the second giving of the law, land. The land or, or second giving of the law. When you look at that passage, he says, I'm going to put you in the land. And I'm going to bless you. And as long as you remain as a conduit or a funnel, as long as you interpret my blessing in your life as a source for strength and a source for hope for those around you, there will be enough. I will provide for you in such a way. I will provide for you in such a way that there should be no poor, no poor among you. You begin to see a picture, again, that is consistent throughout Scripture, that His blessing, His blessing by His providence to His people equals their deliverance. Let me say that again. That His blessing by His providence in the lives of His people is their deliverance. The deliverance of the hurting, the oppressed, in the poor. Isaiah chapter 58, verse, verses 6 and 7. The context, real quickly, the context in this passage, it's folks acting out religious duties. These are folks that are actually in the act of fasting. These are, these are people that are doing religious things, but missing the point. They're caught up in religious perfunction. But they have lost the heart of God. The passage says, No, this is the kind of fast I want. I want you to remove the sinful chains, to tear away the ropes of the burdensome yoke, to set free the oppressed, and to break every burdensome yoke. I want you to share your food with the hungry and to provide shelter for homeless, oppressed people. I don't want religious duty. I want, I, I, my desire for you is to live on behalf of the hurting. You get the picture that I don't want a vain religious show. I want you to show pure religion. You see, again, I, I'm just walking you through some passages that I came across in my journey resting through these things. God, why were you silent? I, I begin to be shocked by by passages that were so crystal clear and cut, Prover like, like Proverbs chapter 21, 13. And I won't add any commentary. I'll just, I'll just read it as, as it's found in the net. 
If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. I begin to come across passages like Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31 that begin to change everything in my perspective. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. No, 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 no. When you oppress the poor, you oppress the poor. Right? He says, no, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. He also goes on to say, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. In Proverbs 19, verse 17, he says, in a similar vein, he was kind to the poor, lends to the Lord. He was kind to the poor, lends to the Lord. And he will reward him for what he has done. The reality in this vein, in this line, as you walk through this picture, the reality is, is part of God's identity is found in his deliverance for the poor. He is a shelter. He is the rescuer. He is the comforter. And he says, when you mess with the poor, you mess with me. And on the other side, when you care for the poor, it's as if you're caring for me. And it's not just the proof text. It's consistent without Scripture. We're all familiar to some degree with Matthew chapter 25. Remember that passage? Listen to Jesus as he speaks. I was hungry. It's a parable. The goats and the sheep. We'll just read this particular part. Listen to Christ. I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And what do you think the response of the people was? The same is ours. The same as mine would be. What do you mean, Jesus? When? When were you hungry? I mean, Jesus, if, if Jesus walked into this room and had a stick in his hand and was needing to, di- di- to dip down and get something out of that dump to eat, would we not be running to Jesus? I mean... We would be fighting over who gets to have Jesus at the table. I mean, I want Jesus at my table. No, 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 he's coming to my, I got him tonight. I, I, got, him at, I got him at seven. Uh, we're going, we're going, we would do Hardee's normally, but we're going somewhere. I mean, right? I mean, when Jesus, were you hungry or were you sick? It, because if Jesus Christ were sick or were hungry, we would run to his aid, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's no doubt in my mind. That we would. So listen to the people's response. They didn't, they didn't say Hardee's, but let, let's hear what the people say. They will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Or thirsty? Or a stranger? Or needing clothes? Or sick? Or in prison and did not help you? When, Lord, did we not do that? We didn't know you were hungry. When? And his response to them is his response to us. He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not 
do for me. God identifies with, associates with. Christ, in his incarnation, became poor and dwelt among men. And he calls his people to radical response on behalf of the hurting. The poor are delivered and God is glorified. Justice enters the picture. God's name is famed. Jesus Christ wins. It's the picture of our lives, our works, our activity being an overflow from His love in our lives. And God's redemption being felt. Matthew 5.16, remember remember that? Let your light so shine before men. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. As we respond in a proactive manner, engaging issues of the day, diving in deep relationally and with our lives, with our resources, caring for those who Christ himself cares for. A bright light shines forth. His fame and his renown is made known. And the real biblical picture is expressed. 1 John 3.16 and verse 17 says this. It's a beautiful picture. We have come to know love by this. How do we know love? We have come to know love by this. That Jesus laid down his life for us. Is that not true? What greater love is this than a man lay his life down? Jesus Christ, needing nothing, wanting nothing, the creator of all things, dying for his subjects. It's the beauty of what we sung about tonight. It's a beautiful picture. There's only one problem. There's no period. This is how we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. He goes on to say, and I don't know the version that's on the screen, and so I'll just read what I have. But he goes on to say, but whoever has the world's possessions and sees his brother in need and shuts off his compassion against him, how can the love of God reside in such a, picture, in such a person? In God's economy, the two don't coexist. In God's economy, His love overwhelms us and flows through us, and there's a natural response for the destitute because it's who He is. It's a part of His response. Now, what's, what's very interesting is even in our journey, it's very easy to come to places where God is, is proactively inviting us, inviting us to share in His cause, and His purposes. It's very easy to come to places like that and say, yeah, you know what? You know, rich people need to do something. I mean, you know, people, I mean, people need to, you know, do something, you know? I agree with that. God does care for the poor. He needs to do something. But but because we judge ourselves by ourselves, we absolve ourselves from responsibility. Well, I, I, I'm not rich, so those rich people need to do something. 
Well, let me share this with you. We are rich. We are rich. Now, now you may say, you're, you're new to Jacksonville. Actually, I, we flew in last night, and, and, and you don't know me, and you don't know us. You know our situation. And so I actually, at this point, I'm actually not even talking about you. I'm just talking about my wife and I. My wife and I are financially well off by global standards. Right now, if you make more than twelve, if you make twelve thousand dollars annually, so if you make twelve thousand dollars annually, you're in the top twelve point eight eight percent of the world's richest people currently. If you make twelve thousand dollars a year, if you're like my wife and I and make thirty two thousand a year, you're in the top seven point one six percent of the world's richest people. My wife and I are in the top seven percent of the most wealthy people on the face of planet Earth. And if you make $50,000 a year, you're in the top 0.98% richest people in the world. See, part of the problem is we've, we've been duped. We've bought into the, the, the whole keep up with the Joneses thing. We bought into a lie, and we've, we have missed that in every way God has blessed us. And sure, there's issues, and sure, there's problems. We, we've got a lot of things going on. But God has blessed us with resources and His Spirit and His Word and with knowledge. And has said, take what I give to you and act as a funnel, as a conduit. Because it's for the good of the nations, for the good of the poor, for the good of the world. And when we begin to align ourselves and recalibrate the stewardship of our lives with the heartbeat of God, we begin to get in the flow of what God is wanting to do in the world. We begin to recognize that there is a cause worth living for. And we get to be a part of His picture. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8 and 9. Some of you are probably saying, are you going to read all 400 verses tonight? I will not. This is, this is the last verse on this particular subject. Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 and 9, just deeply impacted me for a number of reasons. But the main reason is this. I read Proverbs chapter 31 almost every single night of my senior year of college. I, had, I hadn't dated. I, I wasn't really interested in girls. I was pretty focused. I, I wasn't interested in guys either, but I was very focused I was very focused on, on what I felt like God was kind of doing internally. And my mom kept asking those great mom questions that mom asks their sons in college. Like, hey, you dating anybody? Is there any possibility for grandkids someday? And I was just like, mom, you know. So finally I said, okay, mom, listen. If you were to, you know, kind of set the perfect girl up for me, what would you have me look for? And she said, Micah, Proverbs chapter 31. The virtuous woman passage. I read Proverbs chapter 31 almost every night my senior year of college. I wanted God to change my grid, change my lens. I wanted him, I wanted to desire what he desired for me in a wife. Proverbs chapter 31, 8 and 9, you're like, how does this have anything to do with the poor? Right in the middle of Proverbs chapter 31, open your mouth on behalf of those unable to speak for the legal rights of all the dying. Open your mouth, judge in righteousness, and plead the cause of the poor. And the needy. Plead 
the cause of the poor need. That God calls us, God calls leaders in this context to not simply represent themselves and their agenda, but to stand up for the, for the unfortunate, to stand up for the oppressed, to speak up for those who have no voice. And so my wife and I, is, is we are incredibly blessed and incredibly privileged to get to do what God has called us to do. We don't stand in front of congre- congregations on behalf of ourselves. We stand on behalf of 827 million people living in slums and in poverty-stricken environments like Hollybrook who live in places like the street corner ministry that we got to work today that need a touch from God, that need to see his deep love for them expressed in physical acts of compassion. That the God of the universe, from Genesis to Revelations, is consistently calling his people to a cause worth living for, a cause much bigger than ourselves. Advocacy is not new with Bono. And orphan care and adoption is not in vogue because Brad and Angelina adopted The biggest advocate that the world has ever known is the person of Jesus Christ and God himself. And he invites us to be a part of what he's doing amongst the poor for his redemption's sake. I believe firmly as I walk through the scriptures that God has given us a cause worth living for. And I also believe that God has given his people, those called by his name, a mission worth dying for. Now in talking with Antley and knowing some of his heart and and even hearing uh, by listening to some messages the journey that he's been taking you on I'm going to not be extremely redundant here because I recognize this is a part of your guys' heartbeat and so I'm going to spend a little bit of less time but I just want to reinforce and remind from the word of God some of of what is central to the heart of God. In Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 and 19 you all know it The Bible says this. Context, again, let me just set the stage. Christ, this is actually one of the, it's the last several verses in Matthew. Christ has died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. He's speaking to his disciples and he's saying, here's something I want you to put front and center. This is what I want you to organize your lives around. This is something big. This is huge. These are some of my last words. And he gives what we call our mission statement. Now, those of you that own businesses or work in very missional, missionally-minded businesses, you know that all of your activities are supposed to what? Flow out of your mission, right? Your mission governs your activity. Because if it doesn't, you just go everywhere. If you're a golf course and your mission is to do the best golf on the face of the planet, more than likely you won't set up a bubblegum factory and produce bubblegum in your golf course. Because you, you have a mission, right? I mean, that's a very simple and foolish illustration. So Christ is leaving the disciples with a big, this is central, this is big, and he says this, then Jesus came up and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I have the right to say what I'm about to say. I am the all-powerful, almighty God. All authority has been given to me. Listen up. Here's what I want you to be about. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And he goes on to say some powerful things there. Go and make disciples of all nations. Here's what I want you to be about, he says, disciples. Go and reproduce yourselves into other people 
Go and make disciples in all places at all times until I return. It's consistent throughout the New Testament. Now, again, I know this is, this is, this is part of your DNA. This is part of who you are. I got to experience it with you this morning. Awesome. Post-Christ, once we come to know Christ as our Savior, we exist to glorify Christ by making disciples in all nations. Now, oftentimes when we talk about all nations, it's kind of like, well, what about here? Well, here's the beautiful thing. Last I checked, Jacksonville is a city, Florida is a state, and the United States is a, is a part of the nations, right? Still, still there, right? We are on a, the North American continent, one of the seven continents. It's, it, it, this city, Hollybrook, where you're at now, is central to the heart of God. It is a big part of his global agenda. It is a part of the plan for the nations. But the world doesn't revolve around our world. The God's heart is also for Iraq and Afghanistan and the people of Zanzibar Island, Jambiani. His heart is also the destitute and the hurting and shanties in Zaire and Zambia and in Haiti. Our God is big enough that he's not limited to working in one place and he invites us to move his kingdom forward, to join him in all nations, in all places, at all times, and to be about that until he returns. I'm going to just skip a few things and this, share this, this simple illustration because I think sometimes illustrations can bring things home. My wife and I were wrestling some, through some of these realities and actually I was preparing a speech for a, a, a corporation. I was called to give a, a, a speech to a not a church, in essence. And so I was trying to find a creative way to talk about missional living and so on and so forth. And, and so I had done some research on the mission statement of Coca-Cola. Now, Coca-Cola's mission statement is unique in the first part because it says this, our mission is to create a growth strategy that allows us to bring good to the world. Did you know that Coca-Cola has a mission statement that is global in scope? Coca-Cola wants world dominance. I like Coca-Cola, so I'll probably drink one tonight. So it's not, it's not about me against Coke or anything like that. But Coca-Cola, they have a global mission statement. So my wife and I are in Jambiani, East Africa. We're on a, we were on a survey. We were looking at potentially doing some work there, and we are in 2012. And so we were, we were kind of doing a survey and checking the fertile ground. And we were in an area because we had done kind of the demographics research. It's 99.9% Islamic. We went to a city called Stonetown on the island host of the largest former slave port in, the East Co- in, in East Africa. We walked through the former slave chambers and saw some things that still rivet us to this day. We went back with the guide to where they had the whipping post, and they showed us different places where historically some, some horrible things took place. And as we're walking with our Islamic guide, he said something that, that just shot chills in my spine. It, it just, it caught me. And here's what he said, and I just want to apologize in advance. It's a little bit graphic, but it, it's, it's his words. He showed us how after the children would begin to build up, because so many, the volume of slaves was so high, children begin to build up. He said eventually the children become too, too great, the number of children. And here's his words. He said, they would take them here, slit their throats like chickens, and then kneel in their blood and pray to Allah for a greater slave harvest. And it's just a couple things about that were very disturbing. Obviously, the whole thing was. But he said something. He said, pray to Allah for a greater slave harvest. Now, knowing the demographics of the island and knowing some history about the island, 
I knew the question I was about to ask, but I asked, is it true that Islam was not known on this island before the slave trade, that the slave traders actually brought Islam to the island? And he said, yes. And I said, did you just say that they were praying to Allah for a greater slave? Slavery was all of our issue. It was a global issue. But in this context, did you say they were praying to Allah? And he said, yes. And and, and in his face, it, it was like, it was one of those quiet moments. And he was like, and I, di- I didn't say much. We, we actually shared the gospel with this guy a little bit later on. But this, this overwhelming reality became very clear. And I'm going to connect a couple dots. A physical, a physical oppression that reigned on the island and still reigns today, the poverty is incredible, gave way to a spiritual oppression that is still there today. And in Jambiani, a city that predates the 1600s, there has never been a, uh, a Christian church. There has never been a Christian ministry. But everywhere you go on the island, you can buy a Coke. And it began to hit us that Coca-Cola was established in 1910, and they are fulfilling their mission in all nations, providing a sugar-filled cup of carbonated water. And God, who is about rescuing a lost and traitor race to himself, mankind, who has paid the price at Calvary, who has done everything on our behalf, has been calling his people to partner with him in the greatest rescue mission that the world has ever known. And one of the things that we believe we are seeing God do is he raises up in the heart of his people and leaders like the leader you have leading you here is very consistent. Sure, there's denominationally differences and there's things that will be looked different in different places, but God is calling his people back. He's calling his people back to live for things bigger than what we can taste, touch, see, and smell. At the end of the day, it's wood, hay, and stubble. And what will last for eternity are things that are outside of our current scope. That God is calling us to live, live for a cause worth living for. To care for the destitute, the poor, and the hurting. And He's calling us to a mission worth selling out to. The proclamation his name and his fame in all places at all times. And the beautiful picture is he invites us to play. He invites us to partner with him. He, the Lord and Savior of our lives, calls us to missional and causal living. And we don't have to choose one or the other. It's a both and call to physically express his compassion in real tangible ways and verbally proclaim and show and teach the beautiful salvation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, his salvation and his care and his compassion in our lives is beautiful. And it was never meant to stop with us. We were not designed to be catch-alls We were designed to be funnels for His grace 
We were designed to be conduits of His goodness and His redemptive power. We were designed to live empowered by the Holy Spirit, moving forward the kingdom of God on this earth. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, life's like a vapor. We're here for a moment, and we're gone. My wife and I, the last few years, as we are wrestling with, God, how does this look like? In a good way, God, show us how we can flesh this out. We've consistently been asking ourselves, Lord, we know life is short. We know it's like a vapor. Recalibrate us to what matters to you. Realign us with your heart. I don't know about you, but in the current of our culture, I don't drift towards radical God-like living. And I need, I need to be visited by His presence. And I need to get back into His Word. I need to get on my knees every day and say, God, this day, help me to live. Help me to live for a cause worth living for. Help me to live, to, to flesh out, to pursue a mission worth dying for. Ladies and gentlemen, the beautiful picture is, the beautiful thing is, the beautiful reality is, we are alive. And we've been given breath. We've been given phenomenal opportunity. The question at the end of the day is, what will we do with the vapor of life?